Hey, I'm Pastor Joel, and I just want to say thank you for downloading or streaming this message today. My prayer for you is that you're blessed by the content that you hear. As a church, our desire is to make disciples of Jesus, and we do that by helping people to trust and follow Him in every aspect of their daily life. So if this is something that blesses you, we just hope that you'll feel free to share this with others so that they might be encouraged and challenged by it as well. Then I saw a new heaven and a new earth, for the first heaven and the first earth had passed away, and there was no longer any sea. I saw the holy city, the new Jerusalem, coming down out of heaven from God, prepared as a bride beautifully dressed for her husband. And I heard a loud voice from the throne saying, Look, God's dwelling place is now among the people, and he will dwell with them. They will be his people, and God himself will be with them and be their God. He will wipe every tear from their eyes. There will be no more death or mourning or crying or pain, for the old order of things has passed away. He who is seated on the throne said, I am making everything new. Then he said, write this down, for these words are trustworthy and true. And true. Hey, good morning. So good to see you. If you have your Bibles with us this morning, turn to Revelation chapter 21. We'll celebrate God's truth together. Uh, we're so thankful that God has given us His Word to know Him, to understand more of how fully we are supposed to live for Him, and uh, we love to celebrate that. Uh, this morning, we are closing in on the end of our series on the book of Revelation. We've been going through this for months and months now, but we are down to two final messages. So today, we'll hit Revelation chapter 1. Next week, Revelation chapter 22. And then on Memorial Day weekend, we hope you'll be here to worship with us, even though it's a holiday weekend. We will be doing kind of a brief recap and then a Q&A type service for that. So if there are questions that you may have about the book of Revelation that you feel have gone unanswered during this series, or if there are things that uh, maybe you would like to get some clarification on, or something that you disagree with, something that, uh, that I've kind of presented through this book, whatever things those may be, we would love to hear from you so that we can take some time on May 26th and answer some of those questions. So there's a couple of ways you can ask us your questions. Uh, one, on your way out today, you'll be given a, a card if you would like it and that you can just write your questions down on that card, place it in our giving boxes uh, in the, or hand it to me personally. We'd love to get those. And then two, if you're more technologically advanced and if something even comes up in the middle of the service today and you'd like to ask a question on the screen right now, you see a phone number that you can text into and we will uh, re receive those questions and then hopefully try to answer as many of those as we possibly can on May 26th. So, uh, so thanks for being here today and for helping us close out our series and draw to these last two uh, two chapters in the book of Revelation, we really hit at a great time today uh, where we see something new that's quote unquote born out of God's heaven onto earth. And so it's really a pretty good timing on Mother's Day because moms, you will have a better sense maybe than any of us about what it looks like to anticipate the new arrival. And so for, for any of you who have carried a child for nine months in your womb and then given birth to that child and you've anticipated and looked forward to meeting that child, seeing that child, holding that child in your arms, John paints a picture very similarly today of the new heaven and the new earth that's, that's built and then the city of Jerusalem coming out of heaven to be on the earth so that we have our relationship with God confirmed and solidified for all of eternity. And so in that anticipation, this is what we've been waiting for. This is what we've been praying for, hoping for, that God has promised from the very beginning in the book of Genesis, we see that God's desire is to live with His people, to dwell in relationship with them. But sin breaks that. It mars that existence. 
And so while we can know God, there's separation from us on some sense, in some case. And we're not physically present with God. His Holy Spirit lives in us. Those of us who are followers of Jesus, he gives us his spirit to live in us. But there's still not that physical, I'm here and Jesus is here in front of me. And what's going to come in this chapter is that we're going to see Jesus come to live with his people. And it's going to be the culmination of everything God has been doing from the beginning of time to when it will end. And so I hope you'll see this with me this morning. If you have your Bibles, Revelation chapter 21, here's what John says in verse 1. He says, Then I saw a new heaven and a new earth, for the first heaven and the first earth had passed away, and there was no longer any sea. I saw the holy city, the new Jerusalem, coming down out of heaven from God, prepared as a bride, beautifully dressed for her husband. And I heard a loud voice from the throne saying, Look, God's dwelling place is now among the people, and he will dwell with them. They will be his people and God himself will be with them and be their God. He will wipe away every tear from their eyes and there will be no more death, no more mourning or crying or pain for the old order of things has passed away. And he who was seated on the throne said, I am making everything new. And then he said, write this down for these words are trustworthy and true. He said to me, it is done I am the Alpha and the Omega, the beginning and the end. To the thirsty, I will give water without cost from the spring of the water of life. And those who are victorious will inherit all this. And I will be their God and they will be my children. But the cowardly, the unbelieving, the vile, the murderers, the sexually immoral, those who practice magic arts, the idolaters and all liars, they will be consigned to the fiery lake of burning sulfur. This is the second death. And so this morning, as we jump into this passage, when John says there will be a new heaven and a new earth, I believe we can think about that in the context of a fresh heaven and earth. It doesn't necessarily mean that God is going to completely annihilate this existing globe and sphere and start completely from scratch. I think we can think about this more in the way that we would think about the flood event that took place in the Old Testament. That what God does is he brings judgment against the earth. He destroys it by a flood. And then when they step off of the ark, it's almost like a clean slate that's there. And they're going to rebuild on this new planet. And so God is giving us this picture here. John shows us that he's not going to necessarily destroy everything as in complete annihilation, but that he'll knock it all down to its root, its foundation, and destroying it that way to rebuild on a fresh world. And so in keeping to his promise never to destroy the earth by flood again. If you remember, he told uh, Noah when he came off of the ark, he put the rainbow in the sky and said, I'll never destroy the earth by a flood again. He didn't say anything at all about fire though. And so in this moment, he goes, I'm going to destroy the earth. There's going to be a new heaven, a new earth. But Peter gives us a glimpse into what this is going to look like for God to bring things back to the original state so that he can recreate. Second Peter chapter three, verses 10 through 13, Peter writes and says, but the day of the Lord will come like a thief. And the heavens will disappear with a roar. The elements will be destroyed by fire and the earth and everything uh, done in it will be laid bare. Since everything will be destroyed in this way, what kind of people ought you to be? You ought to live holy and godly lives as you look forward to the day of the Lord and speed its coming. That day will bring about the destruction of the heavens by fire and the elements will melt in the heat. But in keeping with his promise, we are looking forward to a new heaven and a new earth where righteousness dwells. And so Peter envisions the destruction of everything wicked and broken by fire. But remember in Romans chapter eight, we're told that even the earth groans under the weight of sin. Like when when the world uh, experienced sin, it wasn't just humanity that was broken as a result. Sin doesn't just impact our life. 
Sin impacts the whole world. And so Romans 8 tells us that the world has been groaning as in labor itself, anticipating, waiting for God to come back and to make all things new again, to repair what's been broken, to fix this whole process. And so Peter lays that out for us and how that takes place. And it's now going to be free from decay and bondage. And God accomplishes all of that by destroying everything with fire, burning out all the impurities and restoring the earth back to a clean slate. I can remember at times when I was growing up, uh, we had hay fields and different things on the farm. And, and there would be times that we would kind of use a controlled burn. If you've ever seen something like that and you go, you know what? It's just kind of getting out of hand. There's a lot of weeds growing up. We need to just burn off this field and let it kind of let the ashes resume back and get nutrients back in the ground. And let's just bring it back. And then the next spring, things grow back greener and more full and thick. God does something very similar to that in this case, where he'll destroy everything by fire. Take it back to its base platform and then go, now I'm going to recreate this. I'm going to bring about a new heavens and a new earth. And one of the things that I love about that is just the idea of going new heaven, new earth. It may not be exactly like this heaven and this earth. When he says new heavens, he's talking about the sky, not the heaven where God resides and dwells, but the sky, the upper atmosphere. So if you can just imagine new creation, new heavens, new earth, will the sky be orange this time instead of blue? What's it going to be like? There will be a lot of different things that we're going to be able to experience and explore. We'll talk about that in just a little bit. Uh, but Revelation suggests this is a radically new creation, but it implies a transformation that fulfills the old creation. It brings it back to what God originally intended, that there will be perfection, that there would be no brokenness, no decay, no sin, that everything comes back under God's original ideas. But don't expect everything to be exactly the same as it is on the earth today. The end of the verse says that John no longer saw a sea. And so when we talk about this, and John says, I saw this new heaven, new earth, and there was no longer any sea. And what does John mean by that? Well, there's a couple of possibilities. Number one, it could be that John literally looked out and saw this new globe that God has created, recreated on, and goes, there's no giant bodies of water. There are no oceans. But more than likely, John is using the sea to represent a few things. And so if you want to write some things down, just take this uh, in your notes on the back of your bulletin or on our app. You can fill in some blanks. In Scripture, the sea usually represents three things. Number one, it represents evil. If you remember back in Revelation 13, the beast came out of the sea. And as a way of John that was saying he didn't come marching up out of the ocean like he evolved out of the, the ocean. It's a way of him saying, hey, the sea represents evil. And this Antichrist figure came out of wicked humanity. He came out of the sea. He came out of the ocean. And so that was John's way of describing evil. It also, the sea represents separation. That when you think about the sea and you go, well, there are things that just separate us from our friends in England and Asia and Australia. There are just things that separate us. This body of water, this massive expanse of water separates us. Now we've come a lot farther than where John was in the first century with air travel and boats that are much faster and more equipped to handle sea navigation. But when John would think about this in the first century, they would go, when I think about the sea, the sea is scary for us. We don't navigate out from the land very far. We stay close to home. And so John's saying all the things that separate us no longer exist in this new heaven and new earth. And then third, the sea represents the wicked and opponents of God. That in Isaiah, that's one of the ways that God, descri or that God describes uh, humanity. Those who are wicked and who oppose God are talked about as being part of the sea that is like the sea and it wages war against the, uh, the shores and the tides beat and batter against the shores the same way that the wicked oppose God. And so when John talks about all of these things, I'm not so sure that he means with this new creation, this new heaven, this new earth, that there's not going to be any giant bodies of water. I think he's trying to explain these kinds of things, 
There's no evil. There's no separation. Jew and Gentile are together. That all of God's people are in one place together. That there's unification under the power of God in his new creation. And that there's no wickedness. There's no evil. There's no oppression. There's no one who would oppose God. That's what John foresees. And so then in verse 2, he goes on, he says, I saw the holy city, the new Jerusalem coming down out of heaven from God, prepared as a bride, beautifully dressed for her husband. And so one of the things that we think about in the next blank on your outline is just simply this, that when John says he sees the new holy city, the new Jerusalem coming down out of heaven, the new Jerusalem is both a place and it's a people. Often in scripture, we'll hear from, uh, from the writers of the Bible who will say that the bride of Christ is those who believe in Christ. And yet when John describes this new city of Jerusalem, he says this is the bride of Christ coming down out of heaven, prepared as a bride, beautifully dressed for her husband. This city that's coming is both a place and a people. It's where the people of God will be collected and gathered to be with God in his capital city on the new heavens and the new earth. And so when John is describing here, we think about heaven most often when we talk about dying and going to heaven. We think of our souls going up to heaven, right? How many times have you said, that? oh, he went up to heaven. He's in heaven. He's up there, out there. And yet John says that when this takes place with the creation of the new heavens, the new earth, that the holy city, the new Jerusalem comes down from heaven to earth. That God is not interested in taking us in this moment to be with him outside of this creation, this existence. He recreates everything in perfect glory as it was intended in the Garden of Eden and with the creation of the world in its original existence. And he says, I want to be there with my people. And the city comes down from heaven to earth. He says, that's where I'm going to reside and dwell with my people. And so then I want you to notice also that the city is arrayed in splendor, like a bride coming down the aisle to meet her groom. That's how John describes this. We're going to look more closely at the city in just a little while and what it looks like and take a tour, if you will, of the city of the New Jerusalem. But he uses this imagery of saying it's, it's like the bride coming down the aisle. I mean, I love to do weddings. Weddings are way more fun than funerals. If you ever have that opportunity, uh, choose weddings, okay? But, uh, but the truth is, I love to do these weddings, and I love to stand at the front of the altar with the groom and just wait for the moment that everybody's waiting for in the room. The moment when the doors are going to fling open and the bride is going to be standing there in her white dress and the song is going to change and everybody's going to stand up and look back at the bride. And in that moment, I love to walk over to the groom and just get right in his ear and go, hey man, pay attention. This is going to change your life forever. Some of y'all took that differently than I intended. <laughs> yeah, it is. <laughs> The newlywed says it's true. It's the life changer forever. But I mean, this is the moment. Like experience this moment. Be in this moment. And when the doors fling open, I see all kinds of different expressions from the groom. Like I've had guys that have just been like smiling their faces. They're just crazy happy and it's incredible excitement. And they just can't wait for that moment where they're going to be holding hands with their bride at the altar. Then I've had guys that just in that moment, they just kind of buckle and just the tears go crazy. And it's like waterworks all over the place. It's like, here's the tissue. I brought this just for you. And then I've, I've had other guys where literally it's been high fives down the line with his groomsmen going, do you see this? Do you see that? Like it's high fives. It's crazy. It's just joy and energy. And I think that's the picture that John is painting for us in this moment. 
And he's just going to, when you look up into heaven and when God has recreated this earth in his perfection and when the new city of Jerusalem comes down out of heaven, adorned as a bride in its array and in its splendor, it's coming. It's God and his people being united as one forever and forever. You're going, this is life-changing. This is the moment we've been waiting for. This is what it's all about. We get to be with Jesus and we get to reign with him on the earth. He's going to establish his eternal kingdom here and he's going to join with us as his covenant people forever. And then look forward with me to verse three. John says, and I heard a loud voice from the throne saying, have you ever noticed as you've read through Revelation, it's always a loud voice. Nobody whispers in heaven. If you like inside voices as teachers, you're not going to like heaven so much because every time John says, and I heard somebody speak, it's always with a loud voice. Like everybody from heaven is screaming out and going, loud voice time, look, God's dwelling place is now among the people. He will dwell with them and they will be his people and God himself will be with them and be their God. John goes, this voice that I heard was intended for us to understand this is a wedding covenant, the bride and groom unified forever. This is the culmination of all of God's redemptive work through all of history. He's brought us to this place where he will dwell with us. We are his people and he is our God. And there's relationship in those terms. Did you hear it? He's mine. I'm his. We're united together. And then next, we're told what this accomplishes through this marriage and the characteristics of life in the new creation. And I love this because as John talks about it, he stops having the right words to use. Because if you can imagine, I don't know what this looks like in your mind's eye, of a recreation of the heavens and the earth and everything burning up in fire and then God recreating and then a new city of Jerusalem coming down. Like John is trying his best to describe what this looks like and going, guys, I don't know. I don't know how to tell you this in positive language, so I'm going to use some negative language to tell you what's going on. And John, for several different times in this next chapter, is going to tell us more negatively than positively what's not there than what is there. And so listen to this. Verse 4 says, He will wipe away every tear from their eyes. There'll be no more death, no more mourning or crying or pain. The old order of things has passed away. And he who was seated on the throne said, I'm making everything new. Then he said, write this down. For these words are trustworthy and true. God speaks out of heaven and says, John, you write these things down. Record this for my people so that they know what's coming, so that they know what they get in this relationship. When I come to be their God and they're with me as my people, this is what's going to take place. No more tears. No crying. No mourning. No death. No pain. No sickness. No loss. No suffering. It's gone. I'm making everything new. God brings us to this place because I want you to know how spectacular this is going to be and how much comfort and joy you're going to experience in this place. And so John doesn't try to tell us how travel works in the new city. He doesn't try to tell us if business happens in the new city. He doesn't try to give us pictures of things that are. He just says, I can't explain all the things that are. I'm going to tell you what's not. There's nothing that could ever hurt you again in this new city. Because when God comes to be with you, he'll make it all new. 
He'll take away everything bad and he'll give you glory. That's what we're anticipating and that's what we're waiting for. But I don't want you to lose focus on the greater meaning of this passage and it's simply this, that we will find comfort with Jesus in eternal joy. We can talk all we want to about wiping tears away, no more crying, no more mourning, no more death. But the simple truth of it all is, is that with Jesus, being with him, we have comfort like we've never experienced before. We have joy like we've never experienced before. And we get to be in his presence forever. Jesus says again, the old order of things is gone. It's passed away. I'm making all things new. Everything that was dies. It's burned up. It's gone. And everything new is coming. And then this section ends, verses 6 through 8, with a statement about God's sovereignty. And so John records this. He, Jesus, said to me, it is done. I'm the Alpha and the Omega. I'm the beginning and the end. To the thirsty I will give water without cost from the spring of the water of life. Those who are victorious will inherit all of this. And I will be their God and they will be my children but the cowardly, the unbelieving, the vile, the murderers, the sexually immoral, those who practice magic arts, the idolaters and all liars, they will be consigned to the fiery lake of burning sulfur. This is the second death. And so in this sovereign statement from God, he says, I'm the alpha and I'm the omega. If you're not familiar with Greek, those are the first and the last two letters in the Greek alphabet. He says, I'm alpha, I'm omega. I'm the beginning, I'm the end. I started all of creation and I will be there in the end. And everything that happens in the middle, that was my doing as well. I'm actively involved and sovereignly involved in everything that happens on the earth. And so he tells us he's the beginning, he's the end. But then he also promises that he gives water to drink for the thirsty from the spring of life. And he tells us that it comes without cost. You go, man, the water of life, that sounds familiar. I hope it does to you. If you know your Bible very well, this might sound familiar. It should remind us as readers of the gospel of John. And then in John's gospel in chapter four, verse seven through 14, Jesus has a conversation with a Samaritan woman. He goes into Samaria, which is a place that Jews never went. There was a separation between Jews and Samaritans. They didn't like each other. They didn't get along. But Jesus goes right into the heart of Samaria and he finds a well to sit down at. In the heat of the day, a woman comes out to the well with her pot to draw water. And Jesus is sitting there. Listen to the exchange that takes place. John chapter seven, or John chapter four, verse seven. When a Samaritan woman came to draw water, Jesus said to her, will you give me a drink? Now his disciples had gone into the town to buy food. And the Samaritan woman said to him, how are you a Jew? You're a Jew and I'm a Samaritan woman. How can you ask me for a drink? For Jews do not associate with Samaritans. And Jesus answered her, if you knew the gift of God and who it is that asked you for a drink, you would have asked him and he would have given you living water. Sir, the woman said, you have nothing to draw with and the well is deep. Where can you get this living water? Are you greater than our father Jacob who gave us this well and drank from it himself as did his sons and his livestock? Now listen, I have to tell you, if I was Jesus in this moment, I'd be like, am I greater than Joseph? Heck yeah, I'm greater. Jacob, Moses, Noah, you name them, I'm better than him. Alpha, Omega, does that sound familiar? Beginning, end, any of this striking bell here? Like I am the God of the universe sitting at your well. But Jesus is way cooler than I am. He doesn't do that. Jesus just simply answered, hey, everyone who drinks this water from this well will be thirsty again. This woman had to come every day and draw water. Jesus goes, you know this. You're going to get thirsty again. You're going to be back tomorrow. You're going to be thirsty again. He goes, but whoever drinks the water that I give them will never thirst. Indeed, the water I give them will become in them a spring of water welling up to eternal life. 
And so Jesus paints this picture and he says, listen, I want you to know that the water I'm talking about is not a physical drinking water. I want to give you the water of life. He's talking about himself. He's talking about the gift of salvation. He's saying, if you will drink what I have to offer, you'll never become thirsty again. See, in life, anytime we drink something, a little while later, we're thirsty again. You're going to drink over and over and over today. And you're going to get thirsty again and again and again. We do that not just with water. We fill our lives up with things. We drink things in all the time. I want money. I want power. I want sex. I want prestige. I want to be recognized. Whatever it is that you're drinking and just going, I want more of it and more of it and more of it. And you're never satisfied. You're constantly looking for the next thing to fill your life with. I'm trying this. I'm trying this. I need a new relationship. I need this. I want this in my life. I need more of this. And it's never fulfilling to us. And Jesus says, you're not going to be fulfilled until you drink the water of life. The water that will spring up inside of you. That comes from knowing me as your Savior. And then in the future, John points to this new reality in the new Jerusalem And he says, in the new Jerusalem, there's this spring of life that you can drink from without cost. You can go to it because this is Jesus. And in this new city, you have direct access to Jesus. And you'll never long for anything else in your life again. He will be enough. He will fulfill you and satisfy you in ways you could never imagine. And he can do that in this life too. If you're still today trying to find those things that give you wholeness, that give you a sense of peace, that give you a clarity of who you are, and you're filling your life with stuff, and you still feel empty, the thing you're missing is Jesus. He alone will satisfy you. Every other pursuit of your life is going to leave you empty and coming back to a new well, and back to another well, and back to another well. But if you find Christ, and if you let him change your life, You'll never thirst for outside things again. He will be enough. And so John says in the new city, we have access to Jesus, the source of the water of life. And being with him means we'll never thirst for anything outside of him again. But then God brings up a theme in this last passage that runs throughout all of scripture, but especially in this book of Revelation. He says, those who are victorious will inherit all of this. So he's basically saying those who endure in their faith will inherit eternal life, will inherit the spring of water of life, will inherit the new Jerusalem, will inherit the new earth. All others will experience a second death. He says, so for those of us who are in Christ, we'll we'll reign with God, we'll gain these things as an inheritance. This is what we'll get for knowing Christ. We get all of the blessing of being with him forever and ever in his city, on his new earth, with his water of life. Because you'll inherit all of that. But those who are outside of Christ, they've already been dealt with at the judgment. The last chapter ended with the judgment of Christ, where all those who were wicked and vile and sinful and adulterers and murderers and all of these things that he lists at the end of this chapter, says all of them are separated from God for eternity. They don't inherit this. They inherit what their sins have earned. They inherit eternal separation from God in a literal place called hell. And so John paints this picture and says, you want to be with Jesus for eternity. This is the far better option. Choose this life. Now in the second half of the chapter, John tells us in full detail more what the new Jerusalem will be like. Uh, Jerusalem means city of peace. That's what the Jerusalem in Israel now means is the city of peace. And yet when God brings the new Jerusalem to the earth, it will literally be a city of perfect peace. 
Jerusalem today is not a very peaceful place. There's all kinds of turmoil that's happening in that region of the world. But in this new city, it will be complete peace, the peaceful dwelling of God with his people for eternity. Now, rather than read this last section, the last half of the chapter in its uh, order, I want to take some things and just make some observations and skip back and forth around this to draw some conclusions. So I want us to take a tour of this new Jerusalem together and just pay attention to some of the characteristics of the new city. And so number one, if you're taking notes and writing things down, is just this, that the new Jerusalem shines with the glory of God. That when John sees this, he paints a picture of the radiance and the glory of God shining from this city. So here's what he says in Revelation 21, 11. It shone with the glory of God and its brilliance was like that of very precious jewels, like a jasper, clear as crystal. Then in chapter 21, verses 18 through 21, he says, the wall of the city was made of jasper and the city of pure gold, as pure as glass. The foundations of the city walls were decorated with every kind of precious stone. The first foundation was jasper, the second sapphire, the third agate, the fourth emerald, the fifth onyx, the sixth ruby, the seventh chrysolite, the eighth beryl, the ninth topaz, the tenth turquoise, turquoise, the eleventh jacinth, and the twelfth amethyst. And the twelve gates were twelve pearls, each gate made of a single pearl. And the great city, or the great street of the city was of gold, as pure as transparent glass. And so John tells us that these gems that are all over the walls of the city, that are making up the walls of the city, they're all these different things and they form the foundations of the city. And so what this should remind us of is back to the Old Testament again. John is helping his Jewish readers make some assumptions here, make some some clarifying thoughts here. All of these jewels are corresponding to things that were found on the breastplate of the high priest. And so when the high priest was ordained in the Old Testament, they were giving something like a necklace to wear with a, a breastplate on it. And these jewels were found in the breastplate. It was what the high priest would wear into the Holy of Holies as part of his garb, his clothing, when he would go in to make his sacrifices before the Lord. Once a year, the high priest would kill an animal for the sins of the people, walk into the Holy of Holies in the tabernacle or in the temple, and they would make a sacrifice to God there. And so what John is telling us is that this wall, these walls, this city, when it comes down, all of these gems, they look like the breastplate of the high priest. He's saying the high priest is not the only one that gets to go in now. This is for all of us. This is for everyone. We become priests of God. We get to walk into the holy of holies and be with God in his presence. It's not just for the high priest. It's for all of us. But then John, number two, tells us that the city is laid out like a cube. Revelation 21, 16 says, The city was laid out like a square as long as it was wide. And he measured the city with the rod and found it to be 12,000 stadia in length and as wide and high as it is long. So it's laid out like a cube. Earlier in the study, John was told to measure another city. If you remember, he was told to measure the city of Babylon. This was the, uh, the uh, capital city of the Antichrist. And in Scripture, when someone is told to measure something, it's not always just to go, hey, I want to know how long that is. I don't want to just know how big something is. The reason someone would be told in Scripture to measure something was to find out if it was going to be punished or destroyed or if it was going to be given God's protection. And so with Babylon, when John was told to measure Babylon, it was for the purpose of God to destroy it. He was coming against the city to destroy the city of Babylon under the rule of the Antichrist. In the New Jerusalem, John is told again, hey, measure the city, not to destroy it, but to show God's ownership and to show his provision and protection of his people. God has brought this city, John. I want you to measure it. I want you to show us what this looks like to show the power of God to protect his people. 
Now, if we take very literally here the measurements of the walls, he says they were 12,000 stadia in length. Anybody deal with stadia anymore? No, you don't. Uh, it's 1,500 miles. To put that in perspective for you, that is uh, approximately the distance if you were to drive up the East Coast from Miami, Florida to the southern border of Maine. It's 1,500 miles up the East Coast. And so when he says, I saw this city, and it was 15 miles long in every direction, and not only was it 15 miles long, it was 15 miles high. Can you imagine? We go to places like New York and Houston. We travel overseas to huge cities. You go, man, these are big cities. <laughs> no, they're not. God has the city of Jerusalem that's coming, and it's enormous. He goes, this is where I'm going to live and dwell as my capital with my people forever. And so John paints this picture again for us. All he's doing is just continually painting on a canvas to show us these different things. But he wants us to know that as God's people, this city is huge, and this is where God's going to dwell. But here's the most important thing for us to think about. And what John's readers would have taken from this when they heard about a cube-like city, something that we kind of miss, unless you know the Old Testament really well. But to talk about a city or a room that was cubed, this would have brought into the reader's mind of the Jewish audience the idea of the Holy of Holies. The Holy of Holies was laid out like a square. And so when John says, I saw this new Jerusalem coming down and it's 1,500 miles wide and long and high and deep and all of these things, the readers that his original audience would have heard was he was like, that sounds a lot like the Holy of Holies to me. And John calls it the Holy City because this is where God's going to dwell. And you no longer have to be the high priest to enter in. We're all priests. All of us have access to God in this city. You can walk right in and be in God's presence. No more separation. No more boundaries. Nothing keeping us out. We have full access to God in his capital city. Here's number three. The city has walls and it has gates. So check your politics at the door for just a minute and check out what God has to say here. Revelation chapter 21. We're going to read verses 12 through 14, then 21, and then 17 in a minute. Revelation 21, 12 says, It had a great high wall with 12 gates and with 12 angels at the gates. And on the gates were written the names of the 12 tribes of Israel. There were three gates on the east, three on the north, three on the south, and three on the west. And the wall of the city had 12 foundations, and on them were the names of the 12 apostles of the Lamb. So in this moment, he mentions both the apostles of the New Testament and the tribes of the Old Testament. because there's 12 gates with the 12 tribes' names on them. The 12 foundations of the city have the apostles' names on them. I think what John is trying to communicate to us here is this. The coming into the new city, then in God's Jerusalem, is going to be both people from the Old Covenant and people from the New Covenant. That everyone that has access to God will come to him through his covenant agreements. In the Old Covenant... It was about being right with God through the celebration of the, the um, or through the keeping of the law and then the celebrations that he set in place. Not because you could fully keep the law, but because God made a way for your sins to be forgiven through the law. In the new covenant that the law looked forward to, it's Jesus. It says for anyone who puts their faith in Jesus Christ, they have access into the kingdom of God, into this new Jerusalem. And so John is telling us again, that there, there are people from both covenants that have access to God. Verse 21, the 12 gates were 12 pearls, each gate made of a single pearl. The great street of the city was of gold, as pure as transparent glass. Now, I don't know how many of you have 
doors in your house that are made of a single pearl. Uh, that would be kind of weird and awkward, but God, God has 12 gates made of pearl. And so the gates here are made of pearls to represent value and affluence. And he's basically saying, look, if I can make gates out of pearls, can you just imagine what the rest of the city is going to be like? And John, again, John doesn't have all the words. He can't put into to words what all he's seeing. But he goes, these gates are made out of a single pearl. That's a huge, huge pearl. It's affluent. There's value here. God's showing us how powerful he is. And so then in verse 17, John says, the angel measured the wall using human measurement, and it was 144 cubits thick. So for John to know, and for us, any noteworthy city in the ancient world had gates and had walls to protect its citizens. That's what John would have been familiar with. And so he says, when Jesus comes, his city comes with him, and the heavenly city will have no enemies. So the sole purpose of the gates and the walls is to reflect the glory of God. It's not to keep people out necessarily. It's not to keep people in. He's going to tell us in a little while the gates never close because there's no night. There's no reason to close the gates. But the gates and the walls' sole purpose is to reflect the splendor and the glory of God. Everything about this city radiates God's glory. Streets of gold, clear as crystal. Walls with all of these gems and emeralds and pearls and all these different things. Because all of it is to highlight the glory of God. That's what our lives should be about as well. If we are the temple of God, the place where the Holy Spirit dwells, then our lives should be about radiating the glory of God. That's what he puts himself in us for in this culture. This is part of the reason why when we become Christians, he doesn't just beam us up and go, you know what, you're done. You got to your starting point and you got to your ending point. You found Jesus, now I'm gonna take you out. You don't have to be there anymore. He says, no, I'm gonna leave you there and I'm gonna put my presence in you so that you can shine and radiate my glory into this world. That's our purpose as followers of Christ. And then here's the last part. When we see Revelation 21, verses 22 through 27, John writes, and he says something that would be extremely uh, meaningful for his first century Jewish audience. He says, I did not see a temple in the city because the Lord God Almighty and the Lamb are its temple. The city does not need the sun or the moon to shine on it for the glory of God gives it light and the Lamb is its lamp. The nations will walk by its light and the kings of the earth will bring their splendor into it. On no day will its gates ever be shut for there will be no night there. The glory and honor of the nations will be brought into it. Nothing impure will ever enter it, nor will anyone who does what is shameful or deceitful, but only those whose names are written in the Lamb's book of life. And so for John, here's the next blanks. The city has no temple. Again, he goes back to using negative language. I didn't see, I didn't see, I didn't see. There's no temple. There's no sun or moonlight. It's not needed. There's no evil or impure, impure person who lives there. And he goes, and the gates never close. If it's never night, there's no reason for the gates to close. This will be the strategy of people in cities with walls and gates. At night, close the gates so that we can have fewer guards. We don't have to worry about people invading us when we can't see. We close the gates. In God's city, there is no night. There's no reason to close the gates. But there's no temple. And his Jewish audience would have heard that and went, whoa, that's crazy. Because everything about Jewish culture was centered on the temple. And so he doesn't just say there is no temple. Deal with it. He goes, there's no temple because God and the lamb are the temple. You don't have to go somewhere to experience God. You can just be in the presence of God. He's there. And so as John closes this up for us, 
He helps us to know that the glory of God lights his city. Jesus is his lamp. But then it's important for us to remember as we've kind of taken this tour of the, the new Jerusalem, to get, you know what, when we think about this and we go, this is massive in scope and this is the glory of God in his, in his presence with his people. And yet to think that this is only the capital city. There's more to the new creation. There's more to the new heavens. There's more to the new earth. We may not even be bound by gravity anymore. We can explore the heavens if we want to. We can explore the rest of the new creation. We can go find the new Niagara Falls. We can go find the new Grand Canyon. We can build things up in this new world. God is going to, I believe, in this new creation, tell us the same thing he did with his people in the Old Testament. Go out and fill up the earth. He started with a city, and then he's going to give us the ability to build his kingdom all over this world. And we're going to do it under the perfect rule and reign of Jesus. So if you will, just this morning, as we close this up, I want you just to take a moment and think and imagine what life could be like in this glorious new dwelling place. And to know two final truths. Number one, God loves us and wants to be with us. And that God's creation reflects his power and his glory. And so if you will, Kyle's going to come and lead us in one last song. And we're going to sing about the love and the glory of God. But I want you just to take a minute to reflect and just to think, what could life look like in this dwelling, in this experience, under the sovereign reign of Jesus in his absolute perfection? What would it look like to travel all over this globe and experience the newness of what God has given to us? So many times now I think about all the places I want to go on this world and how limited I am by time and money to get there. And in God's new creation of the heavens and the earth, he's going to go, this is eternal, and you can do anything you want for free. You can just go and explore, and you never, ever leave God's presence because he's dwelling with his people. He's our God, and we're his people. Thanks so much for checking out our message today. We hope you are challenged and blessed by it. We want to invite you to come and worship with us in person if you live in the Tri-Cities area. We meet on Sunday mornings at 9 and 1045 a.m. at One Fellowship Point in Kingsport, Tennessee. You can also get more information about us from our website or our mobile app. Have a great day.